Are you ready to see what God's going to do in your life? Amen. Well, we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, several years ago, I came across a book. I, I, I really don't even remember how I came across the book. I guess the title caught my, my attention. It, the title was The Descent of the Dove. And uh, so I did the little sample review of it, and I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And there was a few things that kind of piqued my interest. And the subtitle also really was part of that intrigue. It's A Short History of the Holy Spirit in the Church by Charles Williams. Now, Williams died in the last year of World War II. It would be 1945. And um, if you Google his name, you'd find, uh, you know, Wikipedia is, is absolutely accurate all the time. But you'll find that he is described as a British poet, novelist, playwright, literary critic, theologian, and a member of the Inklings. Now, that's uh, a name not many people might say, well, who are, who are those people, the Inklings? Well, I can tell you the most notable members of the Inklings, a small literary group associated with Cambridge and, and Oxford, uh, the most notable being C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Toykin. Those names might not mean anything to anybody either. But I rightfully give credit today because when I was thinking about this message, I took that title from Charles Williams. His full name is Charles Walter Stanby Williams. Um, he died just a few months short of turning 60. His wife and only son lived much longer than he. I do not know how he passed away. But let me just give you a sample. Um, he's, he's truly an inkling because it's hard for me to read them, but I try. Here's some of the opening words in that book, The Descent of the Dove. The beginning of Christendom, we always use that word so much, Christendom, is strictly at a point out of time, a metaphysical trigonometry finds it among the spiritual secrets. At the meeting of two heavenward lines, one drawn from Bethany along the ascent of Messiah, the other from Jerusalem against the descent of the paraclete. That measurement, that me measurement of eternity in operation of the bright cloud and the rushing wind is, in effect, theology. Now, that's how we would describe it, right? Uh, he's like, what? What did you say? What did you write there? Not the usual explanation, but there's so much in that book that just kind of forces you to think outside of your norm. And we all need that, don't we? To be pressed to consider things, that's how you grow is when you're stretched and strained about trying to understand something. You know, if, if you're reading the scripture and you come to this conclusion, well, I really didn't understand what I just read, good for you. Because that ought to press you to read it again. That ought to press you like this is, there's something in this that I need to learn. There's something in this that God needs to communicate with me. From Christ's ascension, those two events, just days apart, Christ's ascension to heaven and the descension of the Holy Spirit, the, the coming of the paraclete, the promised gift of God, the empowering presence of the Spirit, that from Jerusalem 
to the descent of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit's arrival is in detail in Acts chapter 2. And you know that. But something phenomenal happened in Acts 2, right? I feel that sometimes we get so used to Scripture, we lose the magnitude of it. When you read Acts 2, we like we read it, we see it. The Holy Spirit descended upon them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, and, and I feel like we don't get the gist of it sometimes. Something happened in Acts 2, something profound, something phenomenal, something that no matter how long we try to figure it out and explain it, it just is beyond us that God would come down like that into the midst of 120 people and possess them and fill them. I'm going to share five points with you this morning about the descent of the dove. And honestly, I can't explain it in five points. And I don't think you can explain it in 100 points over a period of a lifetime. But we ought to try to understand it more deeply, right? And the best thing is to have it in experience. The first point is this. The baptism in the Holy Spirit was a baptism of power, right? It was a baptism of power. And this is first alerted in Acts 1 when Jesus is saying to them, you will receive power dunamis. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And he goes on and says, that power is to be his witnesses in Judea, Samaria, uh, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, the known world. He said, you will receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The launch of the church was with power. You think about that. Power. You will receive power. Not that you might receive power, but what kind of power did they get? What kind of power came into their lives? What was different about that power than any other power? How does one measure the power of God? How does one define the power of God? He said you will receive power associated with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We have ways of measuring power in our realm, do we not? One of those is torque pounds. Another one is horsepower. I learned the hard way in the 1970s when I decided to do mechanical work on our Ford Galaxy 500. I pulled the engine out, almost had a casualty with Brenda because she was helping me. And she had to jump from one fender well to the other fender well because my apparatus to pull it out collapsed while I was letting down the motor. And she got mad and went in the house. I don't know why she was mad. I mean, she just she made the leap. I was amazed. She went from one fender to the other fender. I said, I know how to do this. And putting it together, I didn't go bother to buy a torque wrench. Guess what I did? Snapped it off. So I not only had to go buy a torque wrench, I had to go get an ease out and all of that. And that's how you learn, right? But I was like, hey, it must be very important that you use a torque wrench. Horsepower. Sheer power. How do we measure power? Uh, earlier this year, there was a launch in February. Maybe a lot of you here have no idea what I'm talking about. Elon Musk has a company called SpaceX. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Okay. There's a handful. Uh, we happen to be in Fort Collins visiting with our 
our daughter and son-in-law, and Sean was telling me about it. He said, hey, it's going to be launched here in just a minute. So I go in there, and I'm watching on the computer, and there's this uh, kind of like crowd of millennials just packed in. They're cheering. They're yelling. And I had not heard anything about this until Sean brought it up. Supposedly, this is the most powerful rocket that's carried anything into outer space. And what he and it was a test run on the Falcon Heavy. You can, you can Google this; it's amazing. Falcon Heavy launch, and to just show you how this man's demeanor is, or how he looks at life, he put into orbit a one hundred thousand dollar Tesla Roadster. <laughs> on top of that rocket, and out there somewhere is a Roadster going around space with a mannequin in a real true space suit at the steering wheel, and on the dashboard says, don't panic. <laughs> and the most amazing thing about that launch was the two side rockets that released as the center rocket continued to propel that roaster up into space not only fell to the ground, but they circled down and they landed at the very point where they were launched. It is an amazing video. And he claims that it's the most powerful rocket system ever created. Well, I kind of like bought into that until I did a little research. In the 1950s, a Saturn V rocket system was designed and used in the 1970s. I know that doesn't really apply to some people here today. But it was the system used to launch all of the Apollo moon trips and moon missions. Let me just give you a little bit of idea. At launch, at launch, the Saturn V had 7.6 million pounds of thrust, equivalent to 160 million horsepower. And they retired it in 1973, and I still believe it must be the most powerful rocket. But listen, why am I mentioning that? That's what it takes for us to launch something from this planet into our own little spot in space. It has no match for what happened from heaven to earth when the Holy Spirit came down in that upper room, it is the same Holy Spirit you see in the book of Genesis that hovered over a, a disorder, chaotic void and brought light and order. That same Holy Spirit is what descended into that upper room. No match of power that we have can challenge that. The dove landed in a room packed with 120 people waiting for something, waiting for the gift, waiting for the promise and power they received, power that radically changed their life. Not a human source of power. It happened to fall in a Jewish festival called Pentecost or the Feast of First Fruits. And what was done at that feast, it was to celebrate the barley harvest. And priests would take two loaves of bread and wave them as part of the worship. And you just think about that little wave of two loaves of bread to celebrate God's blessing of the harvest. Think about what God did when a mighty rushing wind, the sound of it, entered into that room and filled all of those people there with his power. We have through the infilling of the Holy Spirit a power that is immeasurable, that's unlimited, and it's only limited 
by those through whom that power is working. It's up to us, right? It's only limited by us. Dwight Lyman Moody, D.L. Moody, testifies about an encounter he had with Henry Varley. Henry Varley was a British revivalist. And in 1872, Moody was there in, in Dublin visiting, and he heard him say something in a line that stuck with him. And a year later, he was back at Dublin, and he asked Henry Varley, do you remember what you said to me a year ago? And he said, well, not exactly. I don't remember. He says, well, you said something like this, that the world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And Varley says, well, I don't, I don't think that was the exact wording. He says, whether it was exact or not, that's what God told me. <laughs> and by God's help, I will be that person. And from that point on, Moody wanted to be as closely committed and completely consecrated unto God, a surrendered life, a yielded life, people who yield themselves. Listen, I'm talking to all of us this morning. To yield yourself to the possession of God, to the possession of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with His Spirit, to throw off all restraints and say to God, I want to be that fully consecrated person to you. I want to be wide open for you to fill me with your power. Do you want that power? Do you want that baptism? Well, there's another part of that baptism. It's a baptism of fire. And this is right mentioned early in Acts when he says um, that there was going to be a baptism not like John. John baptized with water. But there was something about that baptism that Luke records in Luke chapter 3 when uh, John the Baptist is preaching and he's just, he's, he is, for lack of a better word, he's just hammering people. He starts off by saying, you bunch of snakes. That really gets, wins the crowd over. You bunch of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Don't come like you are. Bring evidence that you really repent. That would really go over today, wouldn't it? And, and people got convicted. And they started saying, uh, even tax collectors <laughs> said, uh, well, what are we supposed to do? He says, don't collect more than you ought to. And then there's soldiers there. How in the world did we miss that? Soldiers at John the Baptist preaching says, well, what should we do? Well, don't extort money from people and don't, pe don't arrest people without cause and be satisfied with your pay. Who tells soldiers to be satisfied? He said, that's how you repent. And everybody was listening to him preach, such a powerful preacher. And he heard the whispers and he heard people and there were even some that openly asked him, are you the Messiah? Now, you know how John 3.16 goes, don't you? We ought to know how Luke 3.16 goes. Because John heard this. Oh, is he the Messiah? Could he be the Messiah? And John said, no, I'm not the Messiah. There's one coming after me. The sandals I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Ghost and fire. He will baptize you with a baptism of fire. Sometimes we lose that, that part of that baptism. It's a baptism of fire. How does that work? Verse 17 says how it works. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and the wheat from the chaff, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He said there's going to be a fire element, not just a power element. There's a fire element in the baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit. This was part of the prophecy 
It parallels what Luke records. That this is going to be a, a baptism that purges your life. You see, wind mixed with fire is an unwelcome combination, just like as California. You know, that's, that's a dangerous thing to have fire and wind at the same time. But that's exactly what happened in the upper room. And it wasn't the destruction. It was this move of God in people's lives that was burning up the chaff in their lives. The real Messiah will bring a baptism of fire, and it's a separating of the lasting fruit of God in your life and those things that are non-productive and have no usage in God's plan for you. It must go through a disturbance, though, winnowing forth. The idea is you toss the wheat up in the air. You have to disturb it. You have to break it apart from the husk, and you take the grain, and you separate it from the chaff, and you burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. He says, this is what God wants to do in your life. He wants to burn up the chaff in my life and in your life. And where's that chaff? He wants to burn off the chaff of complacency, the chaff of excuses, you know, we sometimes hear God calling us, or we, we should all be his voices in our community, in our world, where we're at, talking to people about salvation, right? I think that's for everybody, right? Unless the Great Commission was like age-restrictive and uh, personality-restrictive. But I don't see any restrictions with personality or age, do you? I don't see any footnotes there. He says, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Most of you will be my witnesses. Some of you will be my witnesses. But he was saying, like, all of you will be a witness of me. And I know somebody might say, well, that's not my personality. That is the point. It's not supposed to be your personality. It is the personality of God imposed upon us by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to have power beyond our hang-ups, Right? Beyond our limitations, we can all look at our limitations and not do a thing for God. This is why we need that immersion in the Holy Spirit. Burn off the chaff that litters our minds, our souls, our, our hearts, our hearing, the excuses, deceit, every criticism, silliness, frivolity, things that don't do anything for God that sometimes dominate our lives. And he wants to burn all that up with his fire. Would you like to have chaff in your life burned up? All of it? Oh, God. Immerses in that baptism of fire. Here's another point. And this sometimes gets all the attention, but it's just part of it. There's a baptism of tongues. And when I'm just saying tongues, I'm not talking about the initial evidence. And, and listen, folks, tongues is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's an evidence of, along with other things, that's evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it says there was tongues of fire that separated and visibly came and stood over the heads of 120 people. And the very next verse says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them, as the Spirit gave utterance. Known languages. When, when you read on down, you see all of these people, these pilgrims, these people who traveled for this festival, the Pentecostal festival, they traveled there for both Passover and Pentecost, and they were still in town, and they heard something that stood there. They heard simple, uneducated Galileans. And people from the South know how that feels to be put in that category. What'd you say? Brenda ordered coffee one time in Oregon, and she had to tell the lady three times in the drive-thru, coffee. She couldn't understand southern coffee. You know, it's like, 
Well, how, do, how else do we say? Do we spell it out? But usually, these people had the accent of Galileans, and, they, and these were foreigners. In a way, they, they were Jewish worshipers, but they, went from, they came from different parts of the world, all the way from Rome, all the way from Iran. There was Persians, there were Arabs, there was people all through North Africa, all the way over from Libya. In the Crete, there was 15 different areas that it mentions that these people were from. I thought about that. When I saw Arabs, I said, I wonder if one of those or some of those in the upper room was speaking in tongues in Arabic. It wouldn't that be, I, I guess they had to. Because all these people from different regions are like, wow, what is going on here? We, we're hearing people who we know do not know our dialects, do not know our particular language, and yet we hear them all saying the same thing. It's the wonderful works of God that he has for you. And they were like, how is this happening? The glossi, the unknown tongues that all these people in the upper room were speaking, languages they didn't know what they were speaking. It was a supernatural phenomenon as they spoke what the Holy Spirit was giving them. But there was hearers out in the streets that heard all of that and recognized their dialect and said, they're telling us something about God. Now explain that. Other than it was immersion of speech. It was immersion of this and we could all use an immersion of this. A giving away of our capacity of language to God and say, Lord, immerse me in a baptism of speech that's from you and not from me. God demonstrated his power when he, and when he flowed through people who had no knowledge of these languages and was using them to preach the gospel and most of them, if not all of them, were bilingual because in one language, Peter got up and preached in one language and 3,000 of them responded to the call. So it wasn't like they couldn't have been told about the things of God, but they were told in such a way that it captivated their attention and they said, what is going on here? And Peter preached this enormous message, this powerful message on what was going on. Charles Williams points out in his book that of all the regions of the Roman world, these people were immersed in God, converted to Christianity, and probably most of them, we think they stayed there. We think, well, the church now has 3,000 people at next gathering. Most of these people were out of town. So think about this. When Jesus told them that they would be witnesses unto him in Judea, uh, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, that happened on the day of Pentecost. They witnessed to all those people, all the far as away as Rome, far as away as Iran, Persia. And there was people that went back to their homes Christian, the first Christian in their community. Who knows what instruments were sent out, maybe not as missionaries because they were new believers, but at least eyewitnesses to tell other people, let me tell you what happened to us. Let me tell you what, we was on the street outside this place and we heard, and they would recount the story and obviously had a point to tell them that Jesus did it. That Jesus rescued an immersion of tongues. The fourth one is this, a baptism of fearlessness. I could have said boldness, but I like this better. A baptism of fearlessness. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, who was they? When the Sanhedrin, 
saw the courage of Peter and John being unschooled men. They're not educated. And they saw the boldness. They saw the courage. They only came to this conclusion. Jesus influenced them. That they had been with Jesus. Something happened to Peter in that upper room. <laughs> Something happened to him. Something was happening to him all through that waiting time. He was a different man. He, he was changing right then. And he steps forward in the leadership and he conducts the first item of business for them to replace Judas. And, he's, and he steps up when they were being mocked and surprised and all of this. He steps up and says, these people aren't drunk. We're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. People don't drink like this at 9 o'clock. Well, maybe some people do, but he says, we don't drink like that at 9 o'clock in the morning. We, it's not, we're not full of wine. This is what's going on. Jesus accredited. In Acts 2, and 23, he preaches this powerful message to them. He says, Jesus accredited was a man credited by God by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you through, did among you through him as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you. He's pointing out that these people were also there six weeks, seven weeks earlier, probably in the mob yelling, crucify him away with him. And he's pointing out just recently, you were calling for this man's death, but this man is the, is the God man, the Messiah, and God has raised him from the dead. And, and you put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him up and they came under conviction. And people turn to the Lord. This is not the Peter that was intimidated by a little girl at a fire saying, uh, you look like one of them. Yeah, you're one of them. No, I don't know. Who, who are you talking about? I, I don't know him. I, I don't. And three times he vehemently told them he did not know Jesus in the last time with curses. This is not the same man that was intimidated at that, that fire. This is a different man. He's called before the same council that Jesus was called before where they falsely accused him, bribed uh, false witnesses, and orchestrated his death. And they're standing there, and I can tell you by reading this, they didn't give one iota of fear to these people. They stood their ground. They didn't care. They was there for the Lord. They were filled with the power of God, and they were filled with fearlessness. What are you afraid of? When it comes to talking to someone about Jesus, what are you afraid of? Again, you might say, well, that's not me. That's, that's for evangelists. That's for preachers. That's for people who really know how to do that. Look what you're missing. Look what you're missing, and what are you afraid of? I think everyone in this room probably could walk up to a pharmacist in this city somewhere and tell them you need a prescription field. Instead of handwriting on a note because you're too bashful to ask them for it, like, can you fill this, please? People need a prescription from you. They need a prescription of Jesus. And what are we afraid of? Well, well I'm not trained. Get trained. Whatever is causing you to, to stay the course and not be his witness, the power of God has no equal on this planet. The immersion of the Holy Spirit... I, was, I, was, I just finished reading a remarkable story about Rivka Berry, a teenage young lady surrendering her life 
to Jesus secretly because her family, her Syrian family, uh, was Orthodox Muslim. And she did everything secretively. Even the church she was secretly going to occasionally as often as she could sneak out and, and go. And she asked them to baptize her, but they were afraid the church wouldn't baptize her until she turned 18. She says, you're a minor and you're doing this and we don't want to get in trouble with your family. We don't, draw. We don't want to be the bad guy that we brainwashed you and we got, did all this. So she got some of her friends secretly to take her to a creek and baptize her. She was pressed to follow Jesus. And she did at a great cost. Because when her family found out about it, she had to run for her life. Because the mosque and her dad said, in so, no uncertain terms, we're going to take care of you. You've shamed your family. You've shamed your heritage. You've shamed your faith. And so she found refuge in Florida. And over the next two years, until she turned 18, it was a legal battle between Ohio and Florida. These are the lines on the last page of her book, Hiding in the Light. She said, I deem it a privilege to carry my cross with all men and women across the globe who have paid and are paying a high price for declaring Jesus as Lord. I am not the only one. I am one of untold numbers who live in hiding for his name, yet are honored to walk in his footsteps and exalt his name by forsaking all to follow him. Wherever the church has lost this passion and fervor, May stories like mine disturb the cobwebs that limit believers' faith to a menu selection when Jesus is truly the feast himself. Jesus is truly the meal. He's truly the hope, the peace. And this is my last point. There was a baptism of the prophetic. For the Lord said to Ananias, the Lord said to Ananias, I want you to think about this. Go, this man, Saul of Tarsus, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God is prophesying over Saul. God's the one that's prophesying. There is nothing more definitive of the prophetic of this whole chapter in this whole book, but the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He is the center strategic person that catapulted the church even further beyond the limits of where it was. There's not another person that rivals the role that Paul the apostle had in that day and time. The entire account in front of you, the whole book of Acts is in front of you. The descent of the dove is really, it, it is truly a history of the Holy Spirit at work in the church. But he's still at work in the church. He's still at work in the church. He's still doing his work. Nothing could be more prophetic than Saul's conversion. Visions, Jesus appeared to him as a bright light, kind of like his, a, a different appearance of Jesus. But in this appearance, he's the, he's the glorified Christ. He's so bright you can't see him. And Saul's eyes were even burnt or something happened to his eyes when he saw that bright light and scales formed on his eyes that blinded him. And what a picture of this man who had in his hands papers to arrest Christians, men, women, children, families if need be, to, ex to expunge the Jewish 
synagogue of all people who've accepted this Jesus as Messiah. He had those papers in his hands, but they were simply worthless mementos of a hard heart that he once had. God was breaking him down, prophesying over him. And Ananias, I love this passage. I think it's one of the neatest things when Ananias had to be convinced, don't worry about the guy. <laughs> He's not going to hurt you. I've chosen him. Ananias walks into the room three days after this man is set alone without anything to eat. He is wiped out. All of his pride has been diffused. All of his arrogance is now a thing of the past. And he walks in and he says, Brother Saul, how about that? <laughs> Brother Saul, the Lord that appeared to you on the road to Damascus has told me to come and pray for you for two reasons, that you might receive your sight and that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think you got filled. I think you really got filled. I picture him everywhere he's going, that he's not in conversation with someone. He's in conversation with God, praying in tongues. Everywhere he's going, he really got filled. <laughs> he got filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was targeting the Roman world of his day. Listen, something happened in Acts 2. And it's not restricted to the pages of history. I walked in after, well, during, Brenda was my sounding board during that sabbatical, and I would read something, and I'd come in and ask her. And one of the things I asked her, I said, I'm reading this. Is, this. is this just for us to know? Is this just information? Is what happened in this book, this book called Acts, is, is just for our knowledge, just for our information? Is it, do you think it might be for us today? Do you think some of these things should be happening to us? And she said, well, I think, I think it's, I know it's for today. And here's my question. Where is it? Where is it? Where's the power? Where's, there's too much timidity in us. There's too much reserve in us. Where's the release of God to give us freedom, the liberty to be who he wants us to be, to, to step beyond ourselves? If we limit ourselves, we're, we're not fulfilling the purpose of God. We need the infusion of the Holy Spirit more than ever. And this gift, at the end of Peter's message, when these people got so convicted, he said, tell us what to do. He said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you for the remission of your sins, turn to God, turn away from your life, trust God for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive this gift, this Holy Spirit. And it's not for you only, but it's for your children and your children's children and to us, all those who are called of God, the gift is for you. The gift is for you. You. Me. The gift is for us. I want our praise team to come back up. Because God wants... You know, I, I had a couple stand right here years ago. They, were not, they, they weren't in a... Pentecostal setting, but they were completely sold out to the Lord. And you'd recognize their names if I said their names. They're well known. And they stood there and they asked me this question. This was probably 20 years ago. We believe at salvation we receive the Holy Spirit. What is this infilling? 
We've been taught that you receive the Holy Spirit of salvation. What is this? And the only thing I could say to them, for them to have something to lay beside what they were saying to me, is said, well, to me, we do receive the Holy Spirit when we're saved. But when the Holy Spirit, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, He gets us. We not only have Him, He has us. Do you want Him to have you? It's a dangerous question. But that's what this is about. It's not about us having the Holy Spirit. It's about, does He have us? Would you stand with me? I'm not going to pray right now. I'm just going to ask you a simple question. Do you want a new immersion in the Holy Spirit? And maybe you never had an immersion in the Holy Spirit. But I want you to come and stand across this front and say, I want the power of God. I want Him to saturate me. I want Him to capture me. I want Him to seize me. I want to be His. I don't want to belong to intimidation and fear. And I believe He will immerse you this morning. So if that's you, I want you to come and just stand here. We're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to immerse us again.